Obamacare is collapsing. Obamacare isn't staying. If we did nothing, the law would collapse and leave everybody without affordable health care. We are doing an act of mercy by repealing this law and replacing it with patients. I'm Dan Diamond, this is Pulse Check, and that was Speaker Paul Ryan warning that the Affordable Care Act is doomed. Not everyone agrees, of course, and today you'll hear a couple sides of the most ferocious debate in Washington, D.C. First, you'll hear from Rick Pollack, head of the American Hospital Association, the powerful lobbying group that has come out strongly against the Republican health plan. Then after the break, we'll catch up with Lisa Nelson, who leads the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, a powerful conservative organization that played a key role in resisting the Affordable Care Act, and she endorsed on the podcast Republicans' decision to move forward, if not necessarily the details of their plan. But first, a reminder about Pulse Check. And look, I'm biased, but I think healthcare is the most important domestic policy issue always, but right now more than ever. So if you have a friend, a colleague, a relative with a long road trip, find that person and explain how to get the podcast and why it is so relevant today. We are working to bring you conversations with leaders, thinkers, and influencers who matter. And with that, here's Rick Pollack. And as you'll hear, we were just chatting and it flowed right into our conversation. Question, because I began my career on Capitol Hill uh, working for a uh, congressman from Wisconsin um, in the appropriations world. Which congressman? David Obie. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was focused at that time on education and labor issues. And uh, when I felt it was time to leave the Hill um, and become a lobbyist, as many people do, um, uh, the American Nurses Association was really my first entry point into health care. And they were most interested, frankly, in funding uh, for nursing education and training programs. So they were more interested on in regard to the whole issue of uh, funding for those programs. And it was really from there that I got involved in healthcare being, you know, uh, an area that I was most interested in. So it was actually coming in through the eyes of the nursing community. The first writing and research I really did was around nurses. And man, what a good population to work with. They're yeah. so nice, and they were always so responsive to any question I might have. And they were also, um, in some respects, easy to lobby for because every member of Congress kind of had uh, someone in their family that was a nurse. And when you see a lot of public opinion polling that uh, occurs, most recently, I think Gallup comes out with their annual poll. Most respected Most respected, yeah. uh, you know, nurses, uh, physicians, and pharmacists are the top three. And I kind of feel... From a hospital perspective, that is us. Well, hospitals, yeah, are, are kind of in a similar cohort in that people get what they do. People are supportive of the mission. And you, you made an interesting point about the average lawmaker might have a nurse in the extended family. Right. The average lawmaker has a hospital in his or her district. Every single one of them, virtually, yeah. How does that help you on the Hill? Well, um, to state the obvious, it helps a lot because it gives us a presence in every state and in every congressional district. And given the fact that uh, we're often the largest employer, and given the fact that people rely on us for essential services, public services, um, I think that uh, it gives us a lot of credibility. So when you speak out on a health care issue, I, I feel from my perspective, mm -hmm. AHA carries about as much weight as anybody on the Hill, given where you stand and respect every congressperson. I like to think that's the case. 
<laughs> Who's your biggest competitor in that space? In terms of the hospital world? Well, in terms of lobbying power when it comes to healthcare. Oh, there are just so many different people that um, have uh, legitimate voices in this debate, uh, whether it's the American Medical Association, whether it's the uh, AHIP, the Health Plan Association. Um, there are just uh, pharma, AdvaMed. There are a lot of other organizations that are in that kind of tier. And you're naming a bunch of organizations whose leaders, much like you, have come on this podcast. So thank you for making time I'm for that. I'm glad to be here. The the issue with advocacy organizations comes up in, in the frame of the current debate over the Republican health plan. We were kicking this around the newsroom. I think your association may have been the first major healthcare one to come out and say, we are not going to support the Republican health bill. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, but based on our internal tracking, that's what it seemed like. How do you make the call to be the leader in saying this health plan doesn't work for us? Well, firstly, we had a guidepost, and the guidepost was all around coverage. And we've been in touch with our members and our board uh, for a long time in anticipating this debate. And we always said among the principles that would guide us in evaluating any legislative product would be coverage and whether we were going to be able to maintain coverage for the 22 million people. And uh, once we began to see things emerge, that called that into question, um, it was clear to us that we couldn't support this uh, measure as it's currently written. I am I mean, curious, though, about the mechanics a bit. I mean, it is Politico. We're inside the Beltway. When you decide that you can't support the legislation as it's written, do you then ping the other hospital advocacy organizations before releasing a statement of your own? Uh, we're, we, we're in constant touch, not only with the other national hospital associations. In fact, we meet every Friday morning, uh, and we're in touch with all of the state hospital associations. We have, at a minimum, a phone call every Tuesday. Um, so this is an ongoing dialogue, and nothing really happens overnight, except for when you see a product emerge. Um, we obviously were not going to react to something that we didn't have the ability to read and digest. So that was the ultimate turning point is seeing a legislative product. So just to kind of get the timeline straight in my head, I, I think you guys came out with a letter on Tuesday saying we can't support this legislation not long after the Federation of American Hospitals, arguably the second biggest hospital association, they represent the for-profits, came out with a letter of their own. Are you pinging Chip Khan at FAH and saying, hey, we're going to release our letter. Are you guys ready to go and follow us? Is, is it totally independent and you have no idea that the other groups are going to come out? We, we're in touch with each other in terms of the precise hitting the button on uh, the time that it comes out. It, it depends upon the situation. I would add to that today. Um, uh, all the advocacy organizations. I, all the hospital yeah, ones the hospital are ones, doing yes. a, yet another uh, statement in which we're all united. I, I was reading that before we sat down, a key, key line from, I think it was six or seven hospital advocacy organizations, quote, we cannot support the American Health Care Act cur as currently written. Correct. Are you telling the White House before you release these letters, or is this coming as a surprise to them? We give heads ups uh, to everyone uh, that we've been uh, talking to in regard to this matter. And I also got to say that the people that we've been dealing with, whether they're the leaders on the Hill or whether there are other people involved in the process, um, they knew where we were coming from. I don't think there are any surprises here. And good politics is always uh, not surprising people. 
Well, one one mild surprise is that we are moving ahead with markup and committee votes on a bill that hasn't been scored by the CBO. This is atypical, especially when you think about where health reform was in 2009. I remember sitting around and waiting for those CBO scores before those votes were taken. We don't have a great sense of how many people will lose coverage until we see the CBO score, which should be said, those scores are never perfect, though they're usually pretty good. What what number does your group see, does, does AHA see, as the number of folks losing coverage under the Republican health bill? Do you have a, a target that you've come up with? We've always said we want to maintain coverage for the 22 million people that have it um, as a result of the law. And that's the marker that we look at. Um, and that's the marker that we'll continue to look at in evaluating this. So in terms of the number of people that could lose under the Republican health bill, it seems more than zero. So some amount of that 22 million or 20 million or whatever number you want to say got covered through the ACA, some number will be affected. But is there a number that your team has gamed out that 6 million people, 8 million people, 10 million people are going to lose coverage under the health bill? Or do you not know that? No, we still look at the 22 that um, uh, are covered, and we want to maintain it as close to that number as possible. Um, CBO has not put out the numbers, and we're all hampered by the lack of seeing that analysis. I noticed yesterday that Standard & Poor's put out an analysis that talked about, I think it was uh, between 6 to 10 million people potentially losing coverage, both for Medicaid and in the individual market. So. We're concerned about numbers of that magnitude. Um, Everyone argues with CBO, uh, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, and uh, there is no alternative. They are the uh, referees. They're the striped shirts here, and ultimately, they'll be the guidepost that I suspect uh, will be used for the legislative process. I want to plug that in Pulse this morning. We had a link to a 2015 report that graded how accurate CBO was at predicting the Affordable Care Act, and they overestimated some things, they underestimated others, but the conclusion was fairly good at prognosticating where the law would go. Let me let me pivot a little bit to the ACA now. Mm-hmm. How good was the Affordable Care Act for your industry, Rick? How good was it for hospitals? It was a positive from the perspective that we extended coverage to to 22 million people. Now, we had hoped that it would have been 32 million people, and that was the target back then. Uh, Of course, we had the Supreme Court decision, which affected the Medicaid expansion, and it dropped it to 22 uh, million people. Where specifically states got to choose whether they would expand Medicaid, and there was a fierce resistance on the ground in many conservative states no go on the Medicaid expansion. Correct. The other part of all of this is that when you look at the Affordable Care Act, we tend to view it in two different buckets. There's the bucket of coverage and how do you pay for it, which we seem to constantly be fighting about as a nation, whether it's in the context of Supreme Court decisions, whether it's in the context of Medicaid expansions, whether it's in the context of what's going on uh, on, on the Hill as we speak. There's the other bucket that's related to delivery system reform for the healthcare field. And what the ACA said was we're going to move toward team-based care through clinically integrated, coordinated care systems. We're going to move from a fee-for-service 
reimbursement system toward fee for value, depending upon how you define that. Uh, we're going to move away from an emphasis on reimbursement relative to quantity to quality, from uh, volume to value, and we're going to provide tools to move in that direction, whether it's in the form of accountable care organizations, medical homes, and bundling. What I find interesting is that that element of the ACA is really not one that is all that controversial. And those strategic directions that were embedded to change the delivery system is not the part that we're debating, yet that's so significant for those of us that are in the field. And we think that that general direction is still the right direction to take as it relates to delivery system reform. I've, I've heard from Republicans that I've talked to that containing costs, that's a bipartisan priority. Making healthcare better, the quality better, that too is something that goes across the aisle. And in all of the theatrics around the size of the various bills, the papers that were put out at the Sean Spicer press conference, the small Republican bill and the big Democratic bill, one reason the Democratic bill was so big is it included all of these provisions in the pilots on delivery system reform. So thinking about where hospitals are versus where they were before the ACA, I was looking at some of the margin data. Mm -hmm. The aggregate total margin is, is now over 8% for hospitals, according to the most recent data put out by your association. That is well up from where things were in 2008, 2009, partly because of the recession, but partly because charity care has gone down, profits have gone up. Should hospitals be this profitable? And I ask that because many of them are technically not-for-profits. Right. And uh, for those that are nonprofit, of course, the margins go back within the system and within the community to improve. Now, keep in mind that that's two-year-old data. Um, additional reductions have kicked in since then in terms of the Affordable Care Act, by the way. Um, and in addition to that, that's an average. And averages often mask a lot of things. So within that average, over 25% of America's hospitals are in a negative position. And one has to worry about uh, those hospitals. And while there are some that are doing well, there are a whole bunch that are right on the edge. It's true that the expanded coverage has reduced uncompensated care as it relates to uh, charity care. But one of the other byproducts is that it's increased bad debt because a lot of the ACA plans um, were skinny plans or bronze plans that had high deductibles. Um, and as a result of that, our bad debt has actually gone up. But when you talk about needing a margin, needing a margin is important to reinvest in our facilities. Um, technology is very, very expensive. Um, upgrading our facilities uh, so that they are of the highest quality is very important to patients. And we have expenses that continue to go up, uh, particularly in drugs. I, I know that we're now getting into an issue that has been much scrutinized and one that's a little farther afield from the Republican health bill. But I guess the reason I'm asking is, to your own point, about the value of lowering health care costs and that that's something that bipartisan groups can agree on. Is the healthcare industry too successful, is it, is it a better world if the margins are tighter? Because at the end of the day, patients are the ones paying for those new technologies. The issue of affordability uh, to healthcare is an important one for everybody. And from our perspective, delivery system reforms that 
are moving in the direction that I described is the best way to improve care and reduce cost, and that's what we're focused on. Okay. I'm going to come back to this topic with you at some point. This is not the week to do it because we've got all these political things, um, but but put that on your calendar. Okay. The Thinking about what is in the Republican health plan, and you just mentioned bad debt being an issue under the Affordable Care Act, will the incentives, as we've seen them put forward under the plan, lead to more policies that don't cover enough of patients' care and actually push up bad debt for hospitals? Bad debt is something that uh, is driven by both the skinny plans with higher deductibles and sometimes the HSA plans, uh, where, again, you have people that have the health more savings account plans, right? Yes. That people have more out-of-pocket expenses, and at the end of the day, they're not able to keep up with it. That you know ends up being bad debt for us. So, in a world where Republicans are pushing more HSAs, as this plan would do, there is a chance that there could be even more bad debt for hospitals. Sure, certainly. Now, HSAs, in and of themselves, um, are not a bad thing if they're wrapped around other benefits. But HSAs in isolation, um, we do have concerns about. And it goes beyond just bad debt. It relates to health care. If people are putting off needed care because they're paying more out of pocket, then they're not going to get the preventive care they need, and then they end up in our EDs when we could have caught things much earlier on in the process. So there, there is a... Um, healthcare perspective to this as well as the financial one. So we're talking about the private insurance market. Let's flip this around and talk a minute about Medicaid. The Medicaid changes that Republicans are proposing per capita caps, essentially moving the program away from this open-ended federal match to lump sums. How much does that hit hospitals at the end of the day? Very, very hard. Um, We are very concerned about using the whole issue of Medicaid restructuring as a vehicle to achieving reductions in that program. Uh, That program pays providers less than the cost of delivering services. That program serves our most vulnerable populations. So the whole notion of cutting it and using per capita caps and block grants as the vehicle for that restructuring is one that troubles us greatly, and that's why we've been concerned. Now, a lot of people talk about Medicaid flexibility, and that being the objective. Flexibility in and of itself is a a good thing, and we would prefer that we improve Medicaid and provide flexibility through the use of waivers. And certainly there needs to be safeguards around how you structure the waivers, but given the background of the incoming CMS administrator, the notion of innovative and creative waivers as a method to provide flexibility, we think is a better approach to looking at the Medicaid program as opposed to making deep cuts in an area that uh, serves such vulnerable populations. You're alluding to Seema Verma, who seems all but certain to win confirmation as CMS head, who worked on the Indiana plan uh, around Medicaid expansion and other plans too. And this is something I've heard from many Republicans that they want to see more flexibility around Medicaid, and they're not sure that that's in the Republican health bill. I want to talk about one other issue that's been newsy and that you've spoken out on this week, and that's the travel ban from the White House. Uh, Earlier this week, the White House issued that revised ban, which now affects six Muslim-majority countries and who's able to travel and, and immigrate. And in a statement from you, quote, we remain concerned by the new executive order's implications on hospitals 
health systems, medical professionals, and patients. So this is the second time now in a week that you've opposed a policy that Trump is backing. Can you work with Trump? Yeah, we certainly can. We work with every administration, always have. I would point out that the new executive order, and we alluded to this in the statement, actually made progress in clarifying certain areas from the first order as it related to people that are either green card holders or have visas. What we're mainly concerned about now is making sure that there aren't unintended consequences as we get ready for the resident match, which comes up this spring. And we want to make sure that foreign or international medical graduates that meet the appropriate criteria have the opportunity to come to this country uh, to study and also to be able to um, plug the gaps and enhance our system through their knowledge, plugging the gaps in terms of access in a lot of rural communities that need healthcare professionals. So the ban, they've made progress. Would you prefer that there was no ban at all? We, we're not taking a position on the ban or per se. We just want to make sure that whatever policy is constructed allows uh, international medical graduates to come to this country where uh, it's appropriate and they have, of course, all the qualifications met. And we want to make sure that science, which is something that uh, we need to progress on and improve from is not uh, hindered through any policies that have unintended consequences. And, and I should note for listeners, we went deep on this with Ashish Jha, the head of Harvard's Global Health Institute, on a podcast a few weeks ago on the implications of that ban. Getting back to to Trump, I've I've spoken to folks on this podcast who had directly lobbied Trump or advocated on healthcare issues. Have you talked to him? I have not personally talked to the president. What would you tell him if you could? I would tell him that we need to maintain the commitment to ensure that 22 million people don't lose coverage. Is that your number one priority? Yes. Okay. Rick Pollack, head of the American Hospital Association, on a very, very busy week for you. Thank you for making time. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and I want to make a plug now for Politico. No one is covering the healthcare fight in D.C. like our team, whether it's Jen Habercorn explaining why Republicans are attacking the CBO, or Rachna Pradhan reporting on the effects of Medicaid, or Adam Cancran, Sarah Carlin Smith, Brianna Ailey tracking industry issues. I am convinced that Paul Demko is in disguise as a GOP congressman. He keeps getting copies of their plans so quickly. You can find all of their reporting on Politico.com, also behind the Politico Pro firewall for subscribers. And as always, we highlight the biggest stories in Morning Pulse. The next guest is Lisa Nelson, head of the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, and one of the most important organizations that I'd bet many listeners might not know. In 2011, ALEC released the State Legislator's Guide to Repealing Obamacare. It was a set of practices and tactics that helped lawmakers on the ground push back against ACA implementation. And if you look in the states where the ACA has not caught on, more likely than not, you will find ALEC legislators. Conservatives have praised ALEC as watching out for free market principles. Liberal advocacy groups have criticized ALEC, among other reasons, for taking funding from the Koch Foundation. And with that, Here's Lisa Nelson. So here's here's where I think I really want to start. And 
For listeners who don't know much about your organization, what is the elevator pitch? Imagine President Donald Trump, who does know about your organization, but he's riding the elevator with you. What would you tell him about what you do? We're a unique organization because we bring together state legislators and key stakeholders on multiple issues to have an exchange and a dialogue in order to develop model policy so that you can actually offer up best practices to the states and to the state legislators in particular. And I would say, having talked to supporters of of ALEC, that you are very powerful on the state level. Many of the efforts to block the Affordable Care Act's implementation came from model legislation that your group put together. Well, um, interesting distinction there. We develop model policy, not legislation, just to be sure. We are a C3 and we are nonpartisan. So we're going to be driven by what our legislators are looking at at the state level. And I think part of what you saw on some of the Affordable Care Act pushback was just the fact that the states weren't invited into the conversation. So they didn't really have um, the ability to give their input into how Medicaid should be distributed and how that health care piece um, should be treated to the patients in a way that I think we should have. What was one of the signature policies that was put forward under under ALEC for blocking ACA? Um, I think we had a policy from a couple of years ago, and I don't have the exact name of it, but um, it was a Medicaid expansion policy. So Medicaid, and that remains a big issue that, that concerns the folks in this building. Yes, absolutely. So there's, there's a quote floating around the internet attributed to you that, that the Trump White House, quote, does have the potential to be an ALEC administration. It's filled with people and ideas we've advanced since 1973. Now is our time, and we are ready. Are those your words? Absolutely. And it's more focused on the fact that people in the states have actually become um, relevant in the discussion than ALEC having a place in, in the administration. I think the most important piece of that is the fact that the people that we have been working with, the people that we have been elevating into the dialogue on whatever the conversation is, have now been recognized as leaders on the policy. And and. President Trump has chosen them to serve in his administration. Can you can you name any names that strike you as the leaders here? I would say, in particular, Nikki Haley, who uh, was an ALEC legislator. Um, I would say Scott Pruitt, who's over at the EPA. And um, we've had several people, like the vice president, um, as governor, speak at our meeting, um, as well as Rick Perry, the governor, uh, former governor of Texas, who is now leading the Department of Energy. Got it. It is interesting because I I have followed your organization, and I know initially Trump and Alec were farther apart. Now it seems like you're more stepping in sync. You know, I I think that's an interesting um, observation over the course of the campaign. I don't think a lot of people really knew where the president was going to be on a lot of issues. Um, So um, as he has started to name cabinet posts and name different people who have roles in the administration, I think organizations like ALEC that have traditionally um, posited, you know, a more uh, conservative approach to the issues are seeing, um, you know, we always say personnel is policy. And um, when you see our former legislators in positions of leadership, I think that gives a lot of people more comfort. Let's talk about one of the ways that you and the administration are lining up, and that's on the health reform bill that Republicans have put forward. Trump has put his effort behind it. And I've, I've been I've been watching as groups that are essentially your intellectual cohort 
FreedomWorks, Heritage, others have come forward and said, this doesn't get it done. And yet Alec has supported the health reform bill. Why? I think um, it's really important to make the distinction. We're supporting the fact that they've put this bill forward. We're supporting the fact that they have opened up the dialogue and um, to to put out there that we might carte blanche support how it looks today uh, would be, I think, a little bit of a disservice to our legislators who come at this from all, all different perspectives. We're representing all 50 states. So we have some states who accepted the Medicaid expansion. We have some t- states who absolutely rejected the expansion. Um, so I believe that what we are supporting is the idea that Speaker Ryan has put a bill on the table. Um, for the last month and a half, I think there's been a lot of frustration out in the states that nothing was seeming to be getting done. And um, that noise and that um, interest at the state level to get something done is now being moved forward. So we're supportive of the dialogue. We um, have a few things that we would like to see in a final passage bill um, that, of course, I think we'll, we'll cover. But the most important element right now is that there's something on the table that people are now um, talking about and delivering on their promises. So just, just to make sure I'm getting this, you are happy for the process, but you're not fully endorsing what is in that bill right now. I think that for ALEC legislators, we won't be able to fully endorse anything until we know what the final product is. And what I have heard from the Speaker's office and the dialogue just in the last 24 hours is that this is probably going to be a three to four week process before there's a final bill. I've also heard that um, the Speaker is open to an amendment process that's wide open. Um, As that changes and as that kind of uh, develops, we'll be watching very closely to make sure that the, the pieces of the bill that we want to see in, like uh, state-based competition, are going to be included. Do you think that Republicans in, in the House are moving too quickly? I understand that there's value in having the bill out there, but a big criticism is we don't have a CBO score. And there are going to be votes taken in committee this week ahead of knowing the coverage impact, the cost of the bill, and so on. Should Republicans be slowing down on their progress on this bill? I worked for Speaker Gingrich when we were um, balancing the budget and doing a number of other things back in the back in the 90s. And um, CBO scores are oftentimes um, not really accurate in terms of what the cost is going to be. They have a way of ebbing and flowing. Um, should would the members rather see a CBO score before they take a vote? Definitely, but I think that they're going to have the opportunity to um, react to those scores once they see them before a final passage. Do you think that there's a better source than the CBO to provide analysis of the impact of the bill? I don't know whether there's a, whether there's a better source. I've just um, kind of lived and learned that it's not a static number, and it's always going to be evolving, and the economics of those scores are going to change with different impacts. So week to week, month to month, those those scores could be different. I, I do think it's notable that depending on which party is in power, there is more push to get that CBO score or not. I read a letter that was co-signed by Paul Ryan in 2009 asking the CBO to score what became the health reform legislation for the Democrats. So uh, 
more interest in the CBO score when it was more politically convenient to Republicans? You know, I guess from my perspective and where I sit now as the as the head of ALEC, um, our biggest concern is more about whether the states are going to have flexibility and whether the states are going to have a voice in the development of the ultimate policy. Let's talk about that. So if that is your big focus, the bill right now does not seem to have as much state flexibility as it could. What specifically do you want to see? So, um, you know, we never supported the the Medicaid expansion. We've we've uh, never supported that as part of ALEC model policy. There's got to be clarity around that for the states. And while maybe this bridge that they're talking about in terms of the coverage might be reasonable, we have got to see at the state level a um, a full repeal and a guarantee that that Medicaid expansion comes to a close by 2020, which is I think what they're what they're talking about. Um, we want to see the ability to purchase insurance across state lines, and that's that state-based competition that I talked about earlier. I understand, and I'm not following it as closely as I should, but I understand that can't be done in the reconciliation bill, so that might have to be as a separate piece. But we really think that the state-based competition is a, is a critical piece. I, I think the president tweeted about that in the last eight hours, six hours, four hours. But um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised there isn't like a running ticker with his latest tweet <laughs> that's what, as that's we all we get need. informed on his policy. Uh, but that state-based competition piece is a policy um, that, that runs kind of core to our our lifeblood here at ALEC. We like limited government. We like free markets. And we want to see that competition and the ability for patients to to carry their, um, their, their coverage. Um, the other thing I think that, that we would stress and really emphasize is that this ultimate bill be patient-centered as opposed to government-centered. I know that there were a number of regulations that kind of tied the hands of the states in the Affordable Care Act. And my hope is that we will see Secretary Price um, trying to at least roll back or address some of those regulations So, with, with the idea that the flexibility of the states is kind of the most important piece. Let's take those in, in turn because they're all important issues that kind of stand apart. So first, Medicaid. Why is Medicaid such a bugbear for an organization like ALEC? Specifically, what what is the harm to patients, to consumers, to states? Well, I, I don't think that it's a, a bugbear to organizations like ALEC. I don't know I why think... I used bugbear, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that word popped out from, from 1950 and, and made its way into this podcast. I think, um, you know, I guess my sense is that Medicaid was something that was established 50 years ago and that lots has changed in healthcare. I would love to see more innovation and more creativity around how we how we address the coverage and the care of, of our posts who are in most need. So um, some of the questions that are on the table are, um, you know, who is eligible for that expanded Medicaid, and how do you uh, make sure that those who are in most need are covered? And my understanding from this bill is that they're, in adapting this bridge, they're trying to make make sure that there's not a sudden drop-off. I would also say that, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act looked at 100% coverage for those who were um, in good health, and then 50 to 60% coverage for those who maybe needed more. Um, I would love to see a, um, a, a coverage that is flexibility, flexible for the states so that they can decide for themselves who is in most need and, and who needs that coverage. Just a direct question. The ACA Medicaid expansion, good idea or bad idea? 
Probably a bad idea. Probably a bad idea. <laughs> Why do so many Republican governors who took that expansion now want to keep it? Even Mike Pence expanded yeah. Medicaid in Indiana. What, what, what are they getting wrong? Um, I don't know that they're necessarily got something wrong. My understanding of their desire for that money was give us the money with no strings attached. And um, I think it was only eight or nine Republican governors who took that money and, and said um, that they that they wanted that. And, and we've seen some of their reactions to it. They um, they saw. Um, the financial impact of that expansion and decided that they would rather take the money but then decide at the local level how they wanted to spend it. You also talked about selling across state lines. My understanding, having talked to insurance experts, is that actually wouldn't make much of a difference in improving coverage and, in fact, could lead a bit to a race to the bottom as plans sell policies that might not necessarily benefit consumers at the end of the day. Why does that policy keep coming up in Republican plans? I think for, especially for some, for a group like ALEC, that competition among the states is something that, that we, we just don't believe the race to the bottom argument. We believe that the more competition that is injected into any marketplace is going to drive a better and better product. And I would hope that that competition and that free market um, capability would really, would really live to see the end of the day. We've talked a bit about the regulatory challenges, too, with the ACA, and the HHS secretary has a lot of power. The ACA gave that secretary even more power to set the market and and set different regulations around insurance plans and and beyond. Would you want to see, under the Trump administration, that power scaled back? Anything that scales back the power of the federal government is going to be good for us. And, um, and I think that Secretary Price would probably agree with that statement. Um, he is now looking at a situation, and, and the situation that we're in is that we're dealing with today's reality. Today's reality is that we have the Affordable Care Act that's been in law for six years. We're starting from that starting point. Had we been starting from you know eight years ago, ten years ago, and trying to create a health care system that works for the country, my guess is that he would have started with something with a lot more or a lot less regulatory burden. It reminds me a bit, we were talking about the CBO score and where you stand on the CBO based on what, what your political power may or may not be. Obama ran on things that when he got into the office, decided he wanted to keep them after all. Some of the powers he had with um, fighting, fighting terrorism and, and uh, the intelligence agencies. Price railed against some things in the ACA, like the Medicare Innovation Center. Now that he is in power, it seems like those may be more helpful to him than he thought when he was fighting against them. Well, I can't speak for Secretary Price and what works for him. What I really you know, hope out of this process is that the state-based engagement and the state legislators and even the governors have much more of a say and much more of a voice in what the final product looks like. I, I want to read a quote from the press release that your team put out yesterday. It's, it's attributed to you, so you, you should know this quote well. Uh, the states have been leading the way in health care reform for years. I am glad to finally see Congress taking notes and overturning a policy that has left so many Americans drowning in debt and without the access to care they need. How much of that debt and the access to care can we put on the Affordable Care Act? And how much is about the broader U.S. healthcare system? 
Well, I think probably a little bit of both, but I would say that the cost of health care under the Obamacare Act um, and the Affordable Care Act um, were dramatically increased, and that is included in that debt that I refer to. Um, and I, I do think that um, the complexity of the Obamacare Act, uh, Act it was also a part of that. So I, I just want to clarify, healthcare costs over the past number of years have actually grown at a dramatically slow rate. In fact, some of the lowest rates ever on record. And medical debt, still a problem, but I think it was about 30% of Americans had medical debt in 2011-2012. That has fallen to about 24% in 2015. So not, not an issue that we have fixed, but during the ACA years, cost has moderated and medical debt has actually fallen. I only know from what my circumstances are running an organization of 45 staffers, and I've had to uh, decrease my health care coverage for our employees because the costs have gone up. So, you know, if that's going on with small businesses and small organizations, that's something that we want to look at. How have you decreased the coverage for your employees? The, um, the uh, pay-fors. Other, other part of that, too, the access to care and, and making care better. Do we see anything in the Republican health bill as it stands to help the poor Americans, the ones who may have been hurt most by high cost of care, and in many cases may have voted for Donald Trump in hopes that he would be able to fix the problems that they've seen? Well, I, I think that we're all hopeful that the ultimate product of, of uh, this bill includes um, both kind of a, a, a ramp off, I think they're calling it the bridge, to make sure that those in most need uh, with respect to the Medicare expansion are included. So as we look at the details of the final bill, I think that's going to be something that Alec certainly will take a look at. I asked Twitter folks for questions coming into this. And one question I got repeatedly was, why does this bill give a tax break to health insurance CEOs making hundreds of thousands of dollars? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't. Is that a good policy? Um, you know, I, I don't know the specifics of the tax break or tax credit that, that you're referring to. They're, I just, I don't, I'm not aware of it. Last question from me. Is there... Is there a state that is getting healthcare right right now that could be a model for the rest of the country? Well, um, I guess I would look at some of the states like perhaps Wisconsin um, that have that didn't take the Medicaid expansion that looked for specific ways to give care to their um, to their constituents. Um, and I can certainly give you some additional examples after we go back, but um, I would point to Wisconsin. I would point to some of the states that didn't take the expansion. Under Scott Walker, who's been pushing mm -hmm. Trump on, on potentially a different kind of plan than the one that the House has put forward. That's right. That's it for Paul's Check today. Thank you to Bridget Trendy Coat Mulcahy. Thanks to Rick Pollock and Lisa Nelson and their staff for making time. You can find Paul's Check at all the best podcast haunts. My favorite podcast app is Overcast. I hope it's yours too. And we will be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check in the middle of this crazy health reform season next week. <laughs>